Welcome to Business Disability Forum's podcast, Business Disability Global Debates, brought to you with the help of our sponsor, Shell. I'm Diane Lightfoot, and I'm Chief Executive of Business Disability Forum. And today is the first in our series of Business Disability Global Debates to examine, unpick and challenge some of the key issues of the day um, and look at what organisations across all sectors can do to lead the way and to drive change at a global level around disability. Disability is a global business issue. It's estimated that over a billion people, about 15% of the world's population, have some form of disability. 50% of BDF's own members operate globally in two or more countries, and in some cases, as many as 190, and they're increasingly looking for solutions that will work wherever they are in the world. We, in turn, want to equip them to support their disabled employees and customers and enable them to thrive. So I'm delighted that today we are kicking off the series with the launch of our brand new report towards the disability smart world, developing a global disability inclusion strategy, which we have developed with the support of our partner, Shell. So who better to join me today as my first guest than Lynn Lee, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Shell. I'm delighted to have Lynn with me, uh, albeit virtually today, to continue the conversation we started back in February at our first ever global conference, which Shell supported. So hello and welcome back, Lynn, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Diane. It's really nice to be speaking to you again. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a, it's a very strange time we find ourselves, Lynn. Um, I think we've, we've talked about this before, but we were so lucky that we managed to get this research done and that we managed to have our global conference in the middle of February, which seems a lifetime ago. So how, how are you doing in this, this strange new world? Yes, indeed strange. Uh, and it does seem such a long time ago. So I have been working from home since mid-March. Yeah, so quite soon after that global conference. And I'm very fortunate, I think, that uh, Shell as a company has been supportive. So we were quite fast in our response in terms of working from home. And even though I'm used to working from home, I, I felt that, um, you know, this has impacted me in terms of how I work and also my productivity. Yeah, so there are some days where I have very good days. Uh, and there are also days when I feel really lethargic. Yeah, and I'm not even sure what the case is. I think, you know, if I reflect on it, it has really spotlighted uh, on how physical and mental well-being is actually intertwined. And I think for me, for, for my own well-being, the importance of eating well, moving well and sleeping well uh, during this uh, COVID-19 period. Yeah, absolutely. And um, all the things that people said at the beginning about using this supposed extra spare time to learn a new language or become a sort of 10th dan at karate or, or whatever it is. I don't know about you, but this sort of magical spare time doesn't seem to have happened. And actually the focus on well-being and just doing whatever we all need to do individually to, yeah. to cope. And sometimes, as you say, you know, to get through the day is really important. We've been doing a lot around COVID-19 at BDF, as you know, and as uh, I'm sure our listeners can imagine. And I'm sure we will come back to some of the lessons we can draw from COVID-19 and how we're all working now. 
But first, let's get on to our brand new report. So towards a disability smart world, developing a global disability inclusion strategy is the first study of its kind to consider how businesses are serving the needs of disabled employees and customers at a global and local level. It's based on the feedback from 120 leading global brands from a questionnaire and in-depth focus groups, which, as I say, we were lucky enough to squeeze in before lockdown. It's really exciting stuff. But before we get on to some of the findings themselves, why is this a subject that is so important to Shell? And why did you choose to sponsor this research for us? And thank you very much for doing that. You're most welcome, Diane. And we've spoken about this right? also at the summit. Uh, how I got into this role and how it was quite difficult to guess, get best practices. So um, I'm pretty proud that Shell can partner with uh, BDF in this global research because it does reinforce um, Shell's belief that we can create more impact uh, if we collectively collaborate, partner and share best practices um, and, and not just you know, work within our own company. And I think the research has emphasized that as well, that whilst most companies will agree that disability inclusion is the right thing to do, we also know that there are challenges and there are barriers yeah, which need to be addressed uh, before we can progress together. So I think by developing this roadmap um, you know, of best practices that we have kind of uh, gathered together from many organizations, uh, we hope that it will benefit companies uh, as they implement this uh, global enablement journey. So, so that's uh, I think that has been uh, the motivation behind uh, Shell sponsoring this research. That's fantastic, and um, I'm really struck by Shell's and actually many organisations' generosity in this space and that real coming together to collaborate and and get this right. Because in many cases, it it is so new for businesses. Yeah. And I also know this is a topic that's important to you personally. Are you happy to, to share a little bit about that? Yes. And I'm not sure if I've spoken to you about this, Diane, my experience with a detached retina. Are you familiar with this? Yes, you're nodding. <laughs> yes, you did. You did. But, uh, but our listeners won't be. So do, do tell us again. Yeah. So this happened about three years ago. Uh, and I was actually on a flight back from Heathrow to Singapore. So it's a good uh, 12, 15 hour flight. And it was funny because, you know, for, for those of you who have had a detached retina, and I, I actually would not uh, wish it on anyone. Yeah, but if you've had a detached retina or if, uh, maybe if you've not, yeah, the thing is that you feel no pain. Right. So as I got on the flight, I could still have my left vision. I could see who was seated to the left of me. Yeah. But as the flight progressed, I started to have limited vision. So um, it was I wasn't in pain. I didn't want to, you know, speak to the air stewardess about this, you know, in case we had to land the flight somewhere else. Um, but at the end of it, when I landed in Singapore, I had lost my left eyesight. So it was very scary, yeah. And long and short of it, I had to have emergency surgery. Uh, the tear was quite long, and I was very fortunate to actually then uh, regain my eyesight. Yeah, but, but I think, you know, that perspective of a disability, uh, and it was temporary, 
Yeah, but it, it gave me a real personal experience around how um, disability can happen to any of us at any point in time. Uh, it doesn't actually have to be a long illness. You don't have to be born with it. Uh, it doesn't even have to be permanent. Yeah, but when it happens, you know, something which you're used to, yeah, for me, my left eyesight, right, and, and my field of vision was suddenly limited. Um, so this, this experience and, uh, you know, observing then, uh, you know, other people who may have disabilities, then really got me very passionate about this topic. Yes, and that, and that really comes across, Lynn. And the point you make about acquiring a disability is so important because so many people are worried about addressing the disability um, part of diversity and, and sort of park it in the too difficult box, whereas actually it's the one that, as, as you have just beautifully illustrated, can happen to any of us yes. at, at, any, at any one time. And a figure I quite like to quote is that 83% of disabilities are acquired, not present from birth. So it, it really is part of the part of the human condition. So um, thank you for sharing that. And going on to the report, it is the first time we've ever had a report that brings together a real picture of how global brands are supporting and leading disability inclusion. And as well as Shell, it includes um, input from Unilever, HSBC, Accenture and Microsoft, 120 brands together. And the good news is that they really are recognising the value that disabled people bring to their organisation. And um, you talked about the right thing to do, and the findings show that over 90% of people who replied said that disability inclusion is the right thing to do. And given that we were surveying our members, that's not really surprising. You, you really would hope that they would say that. But much more surprisingly, perhaps, and definitely encouragingly, over 80% said that it allows them to access a wider pool of talent, drives employee motivation, has an impact on sales and opportunities, and supports achieving business objectives. And that whole reframing disability as talent and consumers is, is just so important and, and so encouraging. So coming on to some of the key findings, I mean, this is, this is so new that in lots of cases, actually being committed to it means that, that you are leading. And whilst only a few of the global organisations are resourcing a global disability inclusion strategy, most said it would happen in the next few years. So 23% said they were actually actively resourcing a global disability strategy and another 57% were considering it. Um, and another theme, as we see often in our work, and I know this is a subject dear to your heart, Lynn, um, senior leadership commitment and local collaboration is really key to maximising engagement. 91% uh, of respondents agreed that identifying a senior global disability champion as early as possible was essential to success. So, so clearly you are a brilliant example of a senior champion in practice, but can you maybe talk to us a bit more about your approach at Shell? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting one, right? Because I, I've never really thought of myself as, you know, being passionate and committed and being a senior leader who is, you know, pushing water uphill, right? To put it that way. Um, so, so why do I not feel that way? I think it's because of Shell's approach. So uh, we look at this whole disability inclusion as an enablement, yeah, and and you know even just to call it enable uh, instead of disability says a lot about the approach. Um, and for us, then the human is at the core of 
everything that we do, right? So it's about the human being, it is about human performance, and it's about ensuring that uh, we would do everything around the process, the structures, the equipment, uh, and creating the culture so that, you know, individuals, every person, uh, be it uh, employee, potential, uh, employee of Shell or a customer would feel like they can thrive and have a good experience. Yeah, so, so that's one of our core beliefs, right? Human at the center. And I think when you do that, uh, when you have human at the center and you know your, your whole belief is that you want for people to have the best experience uh, and to thrive and to bring their best selves to work uh, and to be engaged, um, then what you want as well is a culture where leaders are supportive, right? Uh, and this whole concept and this whole idea about care is important. Yeah, so it, it goes beyond just the words, right? Um, it's about doing the right things. It's about taking actions. So care for us is actually about making sure that you know leaders would notice and intervene, and that if a request or if a problem was surfaced or if somebody asked for an adjustment, uh, that it will be done. Yeah. So people would feel empowered to ask for support or to intervene, and that the leader will then support. And this is how we'll create a psychological safe space. Yeah? And, and, and so this is Shell's approach, and it's an approach that you know, feels uh, natural to me because it speaks more about humanity and it speaks about process. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing we might come, come back to is the whole experience, I think, of COVID-19 and that more human and, and kinder approach yes. to, to which I, I really hope will stay. And your point about leaders that notice is really important. Um, and also, I think that leaders who, who lead by example, actually. So what you've just talked about, sharing your experience of having a temporary but debilitating um, condition is really powerful in making it okay for, for other people to, to share their stories and, and to actually ask for some support when they need it. So um, that, that whole kind of senior leadership commitment not surprising that that was a real real theme. One of the challenges that respondents mentioned was gaining commitments from champions or managers at a local level. Um, though they also they did say that actually having that senior leadership commitment again helped them to get that traction. And they said that having an effective community of local leads is really crucial. But there are, of course, some real challenges as well, particularly for organisations operating in many locations, different cultures, different frameworks, different legislation. Um, so it's perhaps not surprising that only a third said that their organisations aimed for a culture of best practice relating to disability in all or most locations. And some of the challenges that maybe are not again surprising that were cited were around particularly handling the cultural differences in the way that disability is understood so 71 percent said that was an issue also managing levels of engagement with disability and accessibility in some countries and 61 percent also mentioned the varying legal requirements between countries so for example we know that in some countries you can ask about a disability some you can't and some you have to so those are real real practical challenges for organizations 
And it also recognised that um, one of the really important things was strong messages, um, perhaps with some different motivations for different areas to engage all parts of the business in why becoming disability smart is a global business priority. And for different places with different cultures, they might be about it being the right thing to do. They might be about legal obligations. They might be about talent and customers. So that's clearly quite a, a challenge for an organization of any size, but particularly the size of, of Shell. So how does that resonate with you, Lynn? And, and, and how do you support that approach at Shell? To be honest, uh, Diane, if you remember when I got into this role about 18 months ago, these are some of the questions that I had asked you, right? And I was pulling out my head to think like, where do I start? You know, is this about, you know, defining it by uh, local legislation? You know, do we look at this from engagement or do we try to, you know, pull this together and have a global strategy? So, I mean, even the, the, the report yeah, and the research confirms that this is complex. Right, mm -hmm. and there are just so many elements of challenges and barriers that we have to address. Um, but I think you know, uh, I'd like to go back again to how we can reframe this uh, and how we can you know maybe think about this um, from a slightly different point of view. So my own insights have been that uh, you know perhaps a, a better way of looking at this is you know looking at disabilities as a spectrum, right? So when we talk about well-being and we talk about uh, our own physical well-being, there'll be days when we are great and then we could fall ill yeah, with uh, flu or fever, whatever that is, and then you're not well for a period of time and then you're well again, right? So, so you go through that cycle and you have good and bad periods. So what happens is in our environment, uh, you know, we've built systems and capacities so that uh, if we're ill, you know, we can take medication, right? You don't really have to explain why you're ill, right? And um, it is quite normal. So I, I think what we want to do in terms of the first approach is to approach disability inclusion as part of the way that we would work. So it is very normal if any of us would request for an adjustment because of a disability, you know, be it visible or not visible, that it wouldn't surprise anybody. Yeah, so I think, you know, firstly, it's that mindset. And how do you then translate that mindset into something that's enabling? Um, I would call it everyday good practices, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so it, it's those things which are habits. And I'll give an example, perhaps, um, from Shell point of view in terms of our safety culture. Yeah, so we, we created habits and processes so that if any of us were to go up or down a flight of stairs and we're not holding the handrails, uh, you can be very sure that a colleague would say, would you mind holding the handrails, right? And we would just go about doing it, go like, oh yeah, you know, yes, forgot. Uh, or, you know, if you're holding too many things, you'll know to not use the stairs and to use the lift. Yeah, so, so that is the everyday good practice that has been inculcated into the organization so that you have people who will look out for each other. You would have um, people who would hold each other accountable. And you would as well, not just have those behaviors, but you have process and, and systems and equipment that will help to address these gaps. And so, so I kind of feel like, you know, if we could build that culture 
and to think about you know good practices and to think about this in terms of spectrum and say what is it that we can do so that if any of us should have a temporary disability or even a permanent disability uh, it's not seen as something that is out of reach you know for us to support right so so that's one i think in terms of everyday good practice I think it goes back as well uh, in terms of definition. Uh, and it could be something that companies would want to consider. What is more important? Is legal requirements important? Or is it something else that the company you know, wants to uh, focus on? And it could be from a recruitment approach, or it could be from a customer experience approach, or it could be workplace adjustment, whatever that is. So, so I kind of feel like it is something which can be addressed from different angles and it then leads to what companies would decide what's important for them as a start, right? And then create the momentum around that. So, so that's how I see it in terms of the approach. For, for Shell, it's really around the culture. It's mm-hmm. about the everyday good practice. It's about, you know, leaders who would leaders who care and that people feel comfortable and safe you know, to ask for adjustments or, you know, or, or to not even feel like it is anything that's abnormal right, or different uh, and that making an adjustment is like maybe having a cup of coffee, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It completely makes, makes sense. I, ha- I have a cup of coffee here. Um, <laughs> but, the, uh, but the point about culture, I mean, it, it's, it's the recurring theme and it's, it's so important. And I really like the everyday good practice because it's, it's exactly what it is. And it's, it sounds so straightforward. And it's just about normalising um, a conversation that includes consideration of disability, isn't it? I mean, we talk about inclusive design in terms of not just um, buildings and physical design, but actually processes. And if you can front consider whether they're going to work for someone with a disability, then you can design out barriers um, and then mean that people don't have to have so many individual adjustments, important as those are. So as an example, the whole thing around flexible working and working from home, a very frequently asked for adjustment and one that some companies would just say absolutely fine and others would find really difficult. And of course, with the pandemic, we've all had to do that, haven't we? And so actually, if you then if you then can say, well, we don't need to know why you need to work from home or why you need to work flexibly. If you do, you just can. Then you just make that everyday good practice, don't you? And you remove the need for someone to say, "Well, I need this for for whatever reason, whether it's a disability or whether it's caring responsibilities or or what." Yeah, because you move it but, from then the process into the human, yeah, and yeah. also then from uh, the need to micromanage into output, right? So as long as you're able yeah. to deliver, yeah, if if the work allows for it, then you can choose the flexibility in which you get the work done. Yeah, absolutely. Focusing on outcomes, really. That said, there will always be a need for some individual adjustments. Mm -hmm. And workplace adjustments are consistently the top two out of vice service. And um, sort of a spoiler alert, we've got a very large report coming out on that. And our global survey showed that developing a consistent global commitment and approach to workplace adjustments is a really critical starting point for some global companies. So 
Two thirds said they were promoting reasons and rationale for adjustments uh, or accommodations, as they're called in the US, for example, at a global level. And a similar um, number said they had developed resources around adjustments and shared them. But only 40%, 41%, sorry, had minimum standards and processes in place at a global level. And only a few more were actively monitoring um, how well they were working, how well adjustments were working in most or all locations. And, and Lynn, I know you've done an awful lot of work on adjustments um, at Shell. So could you, could you tell us a bit about that? Okay, um, I have two examples actually, but let's start with workplace accessibility. And I have to keep going back to the fact that, you know, we, we look at this much more from a spectrum. So um, our workplace accessibility is available, it's a portal, yeah, and it's available to uh, 83 countries uh, across the Shell uh, organization. And, and what that does is it delivers workplace adjustments uh, be it uh, a physical adjustment or uh, facility, you know, accommodation, or even a software, uh, and it's fully self-service. Yeah, so if you can imagine, uh, you know, going online to search for your favorite dress or shirt, that type of thing, right? You go to a catalog, and <laughs> you're laughing, but you're trying to visualize how that looks like. <laughs> you get online. And basically, self-serve, you request for adjustment. So it could be anything from a different type of keyboard, an ergonomic keyboard, uh, to an ergonomic chair, or it could be uh, a software uh, to help uh, our colleagues who are visually impaired, uh, or it could be ergonomic furniture, right, in terms of uh, adjustable heights of tables. And it could be something even around uh, getting one of our shell health, our doctors to provide support and assessment. Yeah, so so you can see that um, you know what what we want to do with workplace adjustment is, as you said, to create a portal, make it as accessible as possible, so that it empowers people to actually request. But I think as well, it creates some minimum standards and expectations, right? In terms of what people can ask for, and and I have to say, you know, it, it's pretty pretty basic stuff as well in terms of footstools, right? If you if you are a short person with, a, you know, a big table and a big chair, we don't want for you to have your legs hanging, right? Uh, and that's also for a adjustment. Yeah, it's about making sure that you are seated properly and that well-being, you know, would, would help you to be productive. And because if you, if you have the wrong tools, it may actually lead to further down the road. Uh, physical disability, right? So that's workplace assessment, self-service, empowering. Um, I have another example, and this is much more around customers. So we're very proud that we've introduced uh, uh, what we call a fuel service refueling app. And this is actually with um, in partnership with a, a third party. And what this does is that, you know, a person with disability can actually download an, an app and choose the retail station that's closest to his or her location and request for the help that's needed in terms of fueling or anything else. Yeah, and uh, that request is sent beforehand so that he or she will get the support uh, that's needed, you know, when they drive to the retail station. Uh, and this is available in about 20,000 uh, self-service stations across Europe, US and Canada. And why do we do this, right? We, we do this because, again, 
we want for our customers to feel supported and we want them to have a good experience of feeling. Uh, and it's not difficult because you really just have to download the app. And I think what's uh, interesting as well is that you may design something for a purpose and then you find that it becomes uh, more important as time comes along, right? So for example, with this field service app, we just discovered that uh, this is actually now even more relevant with the pandemic, yeah, because it allows for people with disabilities, the vulnerable groups to actually get support and to fill up with, you know, social uh, distancing and with their health being, you know, addressed as well, right? Yeah, health concerns being addressed. So, so yeah, this would be two examples around how we accommodate and adjust. I mean, they are both brilliant examples, and I think the the fuel service is just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And and I, I always love it when people design things for disabled people um, that end up having a much broader application and, and resonance. It's fantastic. And then um, I remember um, your colleague Andy talking about this uh, summit in February, and he said it was great because um, the non-disabled people were for the first time getting FOMO, fear of missing out, because they. <laughs> This was so brilliant, and you know what? Why should disabled consumers have at least as good, if not a better, experience? So, I think that's fantastic. I also really like the portal and the self-service element of getting adjustments. And as, as you also beautifully illustrated, lots of adjustments are so simple. People really worry about them, and, and so many are just very easy and make such a difference. People also, when I whenever I mention examples of organisations that have self-service portals they look a bit aghast and I then sort of point out that unless you're going to buy all your family ergonomic chairs or an adaptive keyboard for Christmas it's probably not going to be abused is it it's just not yeah it, it doesn't not many people will abuse it uh, no. and it doesn't cost that much money yeah so you'd be yeah. surprised that on average uh, you'll be talking about a three-figure sum right so maybe in the you know the range of three to five hundred dollars yeah per person in terms of that request because it's not always the big ticket items right of no course, no it really isn't ones, yeah but, but in, no. in general it's not yeah no and it really chimes with that whole piece around working differently in trust and outcomes doesn't it and recognizing that people may be the best place to know exactly what they need to, exactly. to do the job yeah I know that lots of people listening to this podcast will be wondering where to start and maybe feeling daunted by the scale of the task. So, Lynn, can you share some of the fundamental lessons highlighted by the research? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first one is to not be overwhelmed. Yeah, I think as uh, the conversation that we've had now, I would suggest that the best place to start is to look at the organization and see where the energy is. Right, so there will be some strategic choices, as the research has indicated. It could be attracting uh, more diverse talent. Uh, it could be about uh, customers you know, at the start, or it could be about well-being. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but I think the first is to identify what would be the most important, what resonates the most with the organization, and start small. Right, so don't try to boil the ocean. Start with the project, put your arms around it, celebrate the early success, learn from it, uh, get some you know, visibility to the leaders and staff, and then take your next step. So that would be the first 
um, insight and suggestion. I think the second one, as I already said, it would be leadership visibility. And I think that's important because um, you always want to have someone senior enough to speak about this, uh, to create uh, traction, to initiate that conversation with other senior leaders, you know, to, to make this success uh, a lot more visible. Yeah, so, so I think having that, you know, senior champion uh, as early as possible is, is important, right? And again, we always look for the ones who are passionate, right? Who will tell the stories, be authentic, uh, you know, not be afraid to make mistakes uh, and not be afraid to ask as well, right? Uh, that's the second. I think the third one is um, uh, as importantly, you know, as it is to have a leader, we want to make sure that you have in the organization people who are empowered, right? And the empowerment is not just the ability to ask, because before you can ask for an adjustment, you need to know and be aware of what adjustments you need and where to get it. Yeah, so I think it's important to create that uh, awareness. And if it means then um, training, uh, awareness sessions, discussions, then do that, right? Because that allows then uh, the ability for people to act. And that allows then for, you know, the visibility uh, uh, to intervene and also to request for adjustments from the leadership, right? So, so I think that's just as important. And I think lastly, uh, and the research indicates that as well, that it's, it's nice to say all of those things that I've just said, right? But we do recognize that there are challenges on the ground, uh, there are country and cultural differences that impacts empowerment, that impacts the action. So um, it's always good to look and get the ground feedback. And I think a, a good channel for that is um, with networks, right? With the empowerment networks, uh, with the enable networks, to get the feedback around what resonates, what doesn't, you know, what people need in those locations, um, and bring that forth in terms of the global strategy. So I think those would be some of the insights and some suggestions in terms of what companies can think about, you know, as they go through the uh, implementation of their strategy. Absolutely. And um, I mean, you know, you summarized it beautifully, but the whole thing about focusing on where the energy is mm -hmm. resonates, whether it's talent or customers or well-being and where you can actually make it real for the people who will then be delivering it and then build on that. And starting small and not boiling the ocean is excellent advice as well as the importance of passion and authenticity and not worrying about having to ask things or not worrying about making mistakes because it's really new and we're all going to make mistakes but the important thing is that we are trying to get it right and um, so this episode of the business disability global debates podcast series was brought to you by our sponsor shell thank you very much for tuning in if you enjoyed today's podcast, head over to businessdisabilityforum.org.uk to find out more about our resources and services. And why not give us a comment or rating on iTunes or just tell a colleague or friend about us. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast or Spotify and look for Business Disability Forum podcasts and subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. <laughs>